Good evening and good morning to our friends in China. Welcome to the panel discussion on China and the U.S. in 2021 and beyond. I am Winnie Yip, Acting Director of the Fairbank Center for this academic year. Um, when I first took office in August, I met with Bill Kirby and we discussed what the Harvard China Fund, which Bill directs and the Fairbank Center could do together. And we thought that given the unusual China-U.S. relation, it would be important to have an opportunity to listen to and learn from knowledgeable colleagues on their insight on how we should think about the two countries' relationship in 2021 and beyond. And that was the history of tonight's panel. Um, today, as the U.S. prepare for a new presidency, it is most timely to hold this panel discussion to explore different aspects of the hopefully more positive China-U.S. relation from trade to the economy, international relation, and of course, uh, one area that we are most concerned and interested in, higher education as well. It is our honor to have Professor Kirby himself moderating the discussion. Bill needs no introduction to this audience. He's the director of the Harvard China Fund, a renowned historian of modern China, and his work examines China's business, economic, and political development in an international context. And if I can to read Bill's CV, we will not be able to have time left for the discussion. And so with that, I'm going to turn over to Bill to introduce our esteemed panel and to start the panel discussion. Bill, please. Thank you very much, Winnie. And my sincere thanks to our distinguished guests, both on the panel and in the audience. Uh, we're here for a discussion on a very, very important topic. As we all know, the United States and China are global economic and military powers today. We have together a rich history of commerce, of friendship, of alliance, and of antagonism. We were allies in World War II. We were enemies in Korea and Vietnam. And we have since been both partners and rivals. And it's fair to say that both of our countries have been shaped and reshaped by the nature of our mutual relations. This relationship is now in a real crisis, and the outcome of that crisis will do much to define the world of the 21st century. I'm interested in this, of course, as a citizen of this country, of the United States, uh, but also as someone who's been engaged with China for many decades. Interested also, uh, as I have been teaching a new university-wide course here at Harvard on the United States and China this spring. And frankly, from our panelists, I could use some advice as to how to think of the present and the future of U.S.-China relations. What are our enduring patterns? How do our two countries perceive each other? How does trade shape our relations? As in one way or another, it has from the Opium War to Huawei. How can we cooperate on global crises such as climate change? And since we're all uh, at or have been at distinguished universities, what is the role of American and Chinese universities, such as Harvard or Tsinghua or Peking University, in shaping our collective future? 
we have a very distinguished panel here uh, before us. And to help the audience engage them in questions after their initial seven to 10 minute presentation, uh, we have the uh, chat function disabled for the event, but you have you use the Q&A box. And we request as you use the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, that you identify yourself with your name and Donway, your name and affiliation. Uh, but if you don't wish to do so and wish to remain not anonymous, you may submit your question anonymously as well. Let me introduce our first speaker, uh, who's Professor Yuan Ming. Uh, Yuan Ming is Dean of the Yenjing Academy of Peking University. She also serves as Associate Dean of Peking University's Institute for International and Strategic Studies. She's the director of its Center for American Studies. She is professor of its school of inter at its School of International Studies. She studied, graduated at, at Beida, has been a visiting scholar at Berkeley and at Oxford, and has been at many American leading institutions at the Carter Center, Carnegie Endowment, Brookings Institution, and happily has even visited Harvard. She's a member of the Zhengxia, of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference and its Committee on Foreign Relations. And a trustee has been a trustee of the Asia Society in New York. So Yuan Ming, let me just start by asking you, you're Dean of the Yenjing Academy, a place at Beida that brings extraordinary students from all over the world to Beijing. You teach a very famous course at Beida on U.S.-China relations, actually on American culture and American society. How has your course on the United States changed, or how do you imagine it changing in the light of the tensions of the last four years? And how do you imagine it might conclude, maybe differently, four years from now? Can you start with that, please? Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, well, Bill, thank you for giving me this uh, assignment. Um, I could talk about uh, two hours at least, but you only give me like ten, less eight minutes. So let me be, be very brief. I started teaching this course 20 years ago at Peking University, and students, young people, really like it. So every year we have about 400 young students, undergraduate students from all over the campus, different disciplines to join us. Um, it's called the Chinese, uh, excuse me, uh, American Culture and Society. I have a book here. Uh, it's a textbook. So in the past four years, uh, the students still register every year. They register for this course around the number uh, of 300 or more. But this year, 2020, maybe because of the pandemic, everything has to be online. So the number dropped um, very quickly to around 60. Um, so for the past four years, I just saw this course, 
in the stable. The faculty is a joint faculty uh, from different kinds of disciplines, all of Peking University, those leading ones in his or her field. All had personal experiences in the United States. Some got PhD from American High Education Institution, and some uh, just work as Fulbright scholars in the U.S. Very good teaching students. I would say maybe the highlight, uh, four years ago, I invited those young people from the Yanjing Academy from the United States, American young people, to join me in the class. Um, I but my personal feeling, like the Chinese counterparts, just love it because younger generation when they meet each other in a classroom and study their personal stories, uh, stories or personal experiences, very good. Uh, if you ask me four years from now, uh, what I see, I would say, uh, the course definitely would be on the university teaching list uh, in our curriculum, no doubt about it. Then the teaching team would do more, uh, like I already sent out the invitation to ask colleagues all over on this campus to do some evaluation of this of this course. Uh, and I believe more joint work will will be done. Especially after the election in the US. Especially when we see a highly divided America. How we as Chinese uh faculty, teaching team, members of teaching team, to tell our young people uh, about the country on the other side of the Pacific, how we see uh, history, culture, or as a whole, uh, America. And the third point in my mind is the Imagine, uh, in the coming four years, the big uncertainty on this side is the students. How many people will continue to register, to join the class? It's hard to say now. Uh, pandemic will be over, will over. But the whole, uh, the young, especially the students, young people, if their opportunity to study in the United States, the whole environment getting worse, how would they think about their future, which certainly relates to their interest in this particular class? So we would see. So Bill, I think I just stop here.
Thank you, Yuan Ming. Let me just one follow up, if I might. You've been following the U.S.-China relations for many times. Have been an important observer, commentator, and actor in it. Is this, in your experience, the low point? Have we reached the bottom? You want to uh, just a uh, from your you you have to yeah uh, you're you're muted, Yuan Ming. Well, I certainly concerned very much about this. Uh, Ongoing situation, but never you you know me. I I would say well, it's a it's just a difficult time, but we have to work on it. Okay, thank you. Well, this thank you very much for uh, for starting uh, us on this. It's an interest. You know, the Economist just had an article about how Chinese studies uh, they argue is in decline in Britain and in the United States, an interest in China. Uh, these could be mutually reinforcing and unhappy trends. Um, let me turn to another optimist, however, um, uh, always an optimist in my experience, uh, Professor David Daokui Li, Li Daokui, who's the Mansfield Freeman Chair Professor of Economics and was the founding dean of Schwarzman Scholars at Tsinghua University. Two great programs right across the street from each other bringing extraordinary people from around the world uh, to Beijing. He's one of China's leading economists, uh, active in policy advising and discussions. He served on China's Monetary Policy Committee and has been an external advisor to the IMF. Uh, he too is a member of the, uh, the Chinese People's Political Consultative Committee and a member of the Global Agenda Council of the World Economic Forum. So David, so you're the founding dean, you know, and Yuan Ming, the founding dean of Yanjing, the founding dean of Schwarzman. Um, so both deeply engaged in internationalizing missions. You've created this extraordinary center for China in the world economy, uh, something that is much more about coupling than decoupling. Uh, how do you see China's role in the world economy evolving now in the light of changes in U.S.-China relations. Uh, where do you see us, if you will, uh, in four years' time? Well, first of all, Bill, thank you very much for organizing this and also for winning for organizing this. Uh, this is a tremendously important uh, uh, um, uh, webinar. And I was uh, happily joking with Bill before the start of this program that we all look better than before the pandemic because actually we travel well we travel less because of a pandemic we're actually uh, becoming closer because of we are forced to use this technology this uh, uh, internet conference technology which proves to be better much better than we thought so we really should do more than we have been doing uh, this way right and also uh, Bill, thank you very much for helping us uh, Tsinghua University in setting up the Schwarzman Scholars Program so um, every time, you know, you and I meet together, we, we keep on thinking about the, the good old days where we work so intensely right before the start of the uh, Schwarzman Scholars Program. Now, you have wonderful questions. Uh, let me uh, give you my central argument or central view before providing you with some more detailed uh, arguments. OK, my central view is that um, the, the China and the U.S., uh, of course, are are now in a very difficult situation in this in their relationship 
uh, I strongly argue that we need, and actually we are actually doing this, we need to reset. We should pause, like in a basketball game, right? We're not doing well in the first quarter. Let's pause. Let's have a, t- let's have a long timeout. Let's rethink what has, ha- what has happened, right? And let's reset the relationship. Let's reset the game, right? We were not doing well. Both teams are not doing, running the best strategy. The game becomes ugly, right? Let's reset it with each other. And the key players in resetting the relationship are universities like uh, Harvard, uh, Peking University, Tsinghua, and also like intellectuals like yourself, and also like uh, Ding Yuan, and also uh, Fred Hu, and um, you know, uh, Shelly, all up here, us here, right? So we need to have a big timeout. We need to have a reset. Why is that? Why is that? Because my, I have a sim- very simple observation. That is the two economies, the Chinese economy and the, uh, the, the, the U.S. economy, of course, still have tremendous room to cooperate. However, we cannot simply rely upon the economic relationship to, um, to, to, to repair the relationship. Instead, we need, we deeply need a process of of re- rediscovery, rediscover each other. We have to rediscover each other, right? We used to think we know each other very well, but actually, President Trump, thanks to him, we suddenly discovered we do not understand each other as well as we thought. Now, why why is that? Well, let me be very specific, okay? Let me be go to the specifics, okay? On the on the on the Chinese side, we used to think. We understand the U.S. very well. We watch the U.S. election with more interest than watching our our national committee meeting of the National People's Congress. Frankly speaking, and for us, it's it's very important and also to be to be sorry to admit it's also quite entertaining to watch your election campaign, the speeches, debates. Okay, I'm sorry to tell that, but it's the case, right? In, in our internet, we have, every morning we have hundreds of postings. After each turn, each turn of the election. Uh, however, in China, we do not really understand the U.S., including people like myself. At least we have not been able to understand properly. Why? Because we tended to forget that there's another half of the U.S. who voted 73 million votes for Donald Trump despite the pandemic. Despite the, uh, the, the Black Matters, Black Lives Matter movement, despite the, 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 the interesting characteristics of President Trump, which has been shown in the process. Let me, let me say this way. Okay. Interesting per- personalities. I wouldn't say use other words. Okay. Uh, okay. So despite this, that person, President Trump still got 73 million strong votes, the best, the, the, the largest number of any incumbent president. So let's understand for the Chinese, the other half of the U.S. who are maybe deeply religious, who are very, who are, who have not been doing well economically for various reasons. And also let's understand for the Chinese that democracy, democracy at least the U.S. style is actually quite fragile. It's more fragile than we thought. We used to think that America is wonderful. America is very robust. America is able to, to correct itself for any mistakes. Actually, it takes longer process and it's more fragile than we think. Okay. So on the other hand, 
to our American students um, and uh, American scholars, uh, okay, I would also like to say that please rediscover China, rediscover, especially rediscover the Communist Party, the, how the party works, okay? So it's very popular and wrong in the U.S. to view China as an authoritarian state, authoritarian state. It's very popular and uh, to view the Chinese Communist Party as the same party that run, used to run, uh, used to rule the former Soviet Union. Actually, it's very different. Bill, you know, you know the best, I think, among American scholars, among American intellectuals. The Chinese Communist Party actually was very seriously thinking about changing its name about 20 years ago under, under, uh, President, uh, under Secretary General, uh, Jiang Zemin, right? And in the end, they did not change. This is, this is very much open, okay? Now, why is that? Because the debate about whether changing the name of the Communist Party to drop out the word communism, communist, right, uh, was because of misunderstanding in China and outside China. The Communist Party actually is a party following 2,000 years of Confucius and Mencius tradition. And here I emphasize the tradition of Mencius. Mencius. The Mencius tradition is, the Mencius philosophy, political philosophy is that the people are like the water. The water can float a boat. The water can also turn, turn, turn down or undermine a boat, right? So as a ruling party, you have to be always very, very careful in watching out the complaints of the people. So today, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, new motto is that people-centered development, people-centered politics, right? People-centered pandemic prevention, people-centered. That's the Mencius tradition. And on top of that, the Chinese Communist Party, before becoming, assuming national power, fought for 22 years, brutal war, brutal war, first against the uh, Nationalist Party and then against the, uh, the Japanese, right? Military wars, 22 years, much more so than the Russian Communist Party, meaning that the ruling party must be very pragmatic, very adaptive. So in the popular word called the seeking truth from facts, okay, otherwise the party would be finished. The party actually almost was finished, right? Uh, around 20, 1927, as you know, 1927 to 1930, right? Because of Soviet influence, right? And Mao, of course, came out and rescued the party. So that's the tradition. So I strongly argue that Americans rediscovered Chinese political system, stopped using the word authoritarian state. And in fact, let's go beyond, let's understand the process within the party to choose its leaders. In China, it never will be the case that, uh, uh, that reality show anchor becoming the number one party leader in China. Okay, instead, number one leader in China has to go through, has to rotate in the jobs of uh, major provinces and counties, and has to go cover a wide range of jobs before assuming the experience. So these are the things what I try to teach. I try to teach in uh, at our Schwarzman College. Every time, whenever there's an important meeting in Chinese politics, I would come out and teach our students what's going on. How to decipher the, 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 the rhetorics in the Ximen Lianbo in Chinese evening news, right? So these are the things I urge that the incoming cabinet of the Biden administration, 
really, really come to Harvard, come to your class, Bill. You offer a, <laughs> offer a seminar to these people, okay? Tell them to rediscover the Chinese politics, rediscover Chinese political economic system before the U.S. can deal properly with China. So my bottom line to re reiterate is let's, let's have a long time out, like in the basketball team. Okay. We got, we both teams got technical fouls. Okay. <laughs> the referee gives us technical fouls. Okay. Let's pose. Let's control our emotion. Let's both parties, both teams come back and rediscover each other and come up with a better strategy. Let's cooperate in many, many areas in terms of e in economics and in in science technology, in academic exchange. Meanwhile, of course, we compete. We don't compete. How can we have uh, human progress, right? Competition is very important for human progress, or society progress, right? So let's rediscover each other. And in the process, I, I pin very high hope for Harvard University, for Bill and your colleagues, because, because Biden administration, right? Different from Donald Trump's administration, uh, attach much more value to academics. And respect more, much more to academics and to researchers, to deep thinkers. Okay. So I, I really, I'm optimistic, as you said, because, because of Harvard, because of you. Okay. Because of Fairbank Bank Center. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much. So I, I think that then we should just uh, take a time out. And <laughs> we won't do that right now, but I, you know, it's a, uh, an intriguing possibility, which obviously, um, you know, is is uh, uh, not doing something sometimes often better than doing something uh, in international relations. Uh, the it's not to get to know each other uh, more easily. Uh, if the United States uh, does indeed keep uh, members of the Chinese Communist Party from visiting the United States, as uh, not some I think ninety two million members, uh, it's actually a lot of people. Um, the, uh, that makes it more, more difficulty, more difficult than one could imagine. But we're gonna, I think that I got, we're gonna come back to you, David, uh, on, on the, uh, on the other issues as well. But I think that's a great, uh, comment to leave us with. And I'm going to turn now to Fred. Um, I'm sorry, to Shelley, not to Fred, but to Shelley, because, uh, if you think of the U.S. China relationship as a partnership or as a marriage, you know, we all remember the old phrase that was often used for it, that is Tong Chuang Yimeng, that is sleeping in the same bed with different dreams. Uh, I always tell my students, particularly those who have been to or from China, uh, that the United States and China are now are really married together. We are, are an old couple, maybe by an arranged marriage originally with a, a common enemy, uh, but an old couple that is uh, working through very difficult issues uh, in its uh, relationship. Uh, and we have children, uh, including many of the people watching this seminar, including the hundreds of thousands of Chinese who have studied in, in this country and the tens of thousands of Americans who study and do business in China. But we're also part of a ménage à trois, um, because across the strait, the Republic of China on Taiwan uh, has been a central issue in the U.S.-China relationship uh, since 1950, uh, and it is an actor that has been a force at times for great stabilization in this relationship. 
Uh, it's an actor that has done remarkably well in economic terms over time. Uh, it's a, uh, a Chinese political entity that has embraced democracy. And to help us with this is uh, Professor Shelley Rigger, the Brown Professor of East Asian Politics at Davidson College. Uh, she is a distinguished doctorate of this university, uh, as are David and Fred. Uh, she uh, uh, has been visiting researcher at National Zhengzhou University in Taiwan and at uh, visiting professor at Fudan. Uh, in Shanghai. Uh, she's the author of multiple works and books on Taiwan's domestic politics, politics in Taiwan, from opposition to power, uh, and uh, does, has a uh, her monograph, um, uh, her most recent book I actually have right here, <laughs> Shelley, and I've forgotten the title of it. And I why Taiwan Matters. Why Taiwan Matters. Why can I <laughs> not remember a title like that? And I'm going to be assigning it because I was, uh, just read it last week. Uh, again, I'm going to be assigning it for this U.S.-China course. So, Shelley, uh, as the leading, really the, the leading American expert on, on Taiwan and this triangular relationship, how do you see it evolving? Uh, how, how might tensions be diminished if they can be? Uh, what confidence building measures might take place. All right. Well, first of all, thank you very much. First of all, thank you very much for assigning my book. I hope there are a lot of students in that class <laughs> um, and for including me on this really excellent and august panel. I'm very honored to be here. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to solve the challenge of the Taiwan issue tonight, but I we'll try to at least offer a little bit of perspective through the lens of two paradoxes. Um, they may not seem like paradoxes to everyone listening, but I think they are paradoxes. One is really a paradox for people in the People's Republic of China, and the other is a paradox for many Americans. So the first paradox of the Taiwan issue, if you will, is that progress in cross-strait relations, so in the relationship between Taiwan and the PRC, is more attainable when people in Taiwan feel relaxed and confident than when people in Taiwan feel anxious and threatened. And this is hard for many PRC folks to understand because it seems to them that when Taiwanese feel confident, they're more likely to try and run away in the thinking of um, many in the PRC or put some distance between Taiwan, political distance, economic distance, military distance between Taiwan and the mainland. But in fact, when Taiwanese are confident that they are not going to come under intense pressure or have their interests undermined, that's when they're most willing to interact with the mainland. This dynamic is evident in economics and politics. So at a time when the uh, PRC and Taiwan economies were very complementary, the Taiwanese were very willing to engage as they have become more competitive. Taiwanese have become less willing to engage. We see it as well in politics and we even see it in the security realm, which is uh, why the U.S. has always resisted Beijing's logic that Washington should stop selling arms to Taiwan. Washington's response to that has been, look, 
the Taiwanese are not going to talk to you or engage with you if they don't feel secure. So our weapon sales actually help them to have the confidence and security that they would need to begin um, a dialogue under conditions where that is possible. So that's the first paradox. The second paradox is that Taiwan is most secure when US-PRC relations are stable and constructive. This one is hard for many Americans because a lot of Americans assume that Taiwan applies a basic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend logic to the triangular relationship. But in fact, the PRC is not Taiwan's enemy. It is a difficult relationship, the relationship between Taiwan and the PRC, but Taipei would like to avoid hostility with Beijing. And in fact, along certain dimensions, uh, successive governments in Taipei have sought to build cooperation with the mainland. Also, tension and conflict between the U.S. and the PRC tends to pull Taiwan into that conflict in a way that has lots of danger for Taiwan and very little benefit. I should add that um, when I say it, that we're, Taiwan does best or thrives best when there are stable and constructive relations between the U.S. and the PRC, doesn't mean there, that I think that uh, it thrives when there's no disagreement. There are, will always be disagreement between the U.S. and the PRC. But what I mean by stable and constructive relations is that the two sides are managing their disagreements, not letting them spiral out of control. So um, hearing uh, Professor Lee say, you know, we need a timeout, I think that's a good idea because I think right now our disagreements are spiraling out of control and we have kind of lost some perspective and uh, we need to we need to get a grip. Both sides, all sides need to get a grip. So uh, if I were the referee, and I do have experience as a referee, not in basketball, but uh, another sport, I would be blowing the whistle and blow, throwing the flag about this time in the game. So where are we now? Um, Taiwanese do not feel confident or relaxed at the moment. Anti-PRC sentiments are running high in Taiwan. Um, I can talk more about why that is in the Q&A if people are interested, but it has to do with economics. It has to do with the domestic situation in the PRC. It has to do with the Taiwan, the Hong Kong crisis, the COVID pandemic, and military pressure. So there are many reasons why anti-PRC sentiment is at a high ebb in Taiwan today. And at the same time, opportunities for warmer relations between Taiwan and the mainland seem very limited. So a lot of Taiwanese are kind of looking for alternatives to engagement with the mainland because they see engagement with the mainland as unlikely or nearly impossible at the moment. On the other dimension, US-PRC relations don't seem very stable or constructive at this moment. So Taiwanese are trying to figure out how to operate in that scenario. So ideally, U.S. and, and China would have uh, stable, constructive relations when they don't. And when there's no opportunity for Taiwan to have improved relations with the mainland, it's, uh, I suppose, logical that Taiwanese would try to make the most of Washington's willingness to pay attention to Taiwan 
while at the same time trying to avoid getting pulled into the middle of worsening great power competition. So you also asked, you know, what, what can we do? And just very briefly, um, a few things. First of all, the U.S. and China need to dial back the confrontational rhetoric. They need to focus on resolving issues that can be resolved, disagreeing constructively or at least not destructively on things that can't be resolved, and cooperating on matters of shared concern, including climate change and the pandemic. There will be another pandemic, and um, we have to work together to address it before it gets here. Um, I think on the PRC side, it would be helpful if the CCP leadership could show increasing, not decreasing tolerance for political and social diversity within the PRC. The message that um, diversity, autonomy are not well tolerated within that system is alienating Taiwanese people, just as it alienated Hong Kongers, and a lot of other people around the world. So that's something the CCP maybe could work on. Taiwanese need to be realistic about the situation they are facing. Uh, people need to stop pressuring their government to do things that feel good, but actually make Taiwan's objective situation worse. So, for example, um, it, it, trying to encourage their leaders to reject the Biden administration. This is a bad idea, and it needs to stop. Similarly, on the other side of the political spectrum in Taiwan, uh, demagoguing on the meat issue, and again, if people have questions about that, we can talk about that later, is another bad idea that needs to stop. What about Americans? There are many things Americans should do, but I'm just going to mention one, which is directly relevant to the Taiwan issue. Americans need to make Taiwan policy that's about Taiwan, not about tweaking the PRC. We need to make Taiwan policy that attends to the real virtues and interests that are at stake for the U.S. and Taiwan, not to try to use Taiwan as a tool in a particular kind of relationship with the PRC. I hope I've given some food for thought and discussion later on. I'm going to end it here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Shelley. So can I take it that you would have that, um Perhaps it wouldn't be a good idea for uh, Mr. Biden to call up President Tsai before talking to President Xi, in your view, as happened in the previous administration? You know, I think the the most important thing is just to keep it quiet, whatever you do. This doesn't need to be front page news, that's for sure. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, let me turn to our cleanup batter, Fred Hu, who is the founder uh, and chairman of Primavera Capital Group, uh, which is a China-based global technology company. Uh, he has been chair of Greater China and partner at Goldman Sachs. Uh, he served at I the IMF in Washington. Uh, he was co-director for the National Center for Economic Research and professor uh, at Tsinghua University. He's the chairman of Yum China Holdings, and he sits on the board of a recently very famous company, Ant, the Ant Group, also I, and still very famous, uh, ICBC, uh, UBS Group, uh, and the Hong Kong Exchanges uh, and Clearing Limited. Uh, he's also co-chair of Nature Conservancy's Asia Pacific Council and a member of the Council of Foreign Relations Global Advisory 
board as Yuan Ming has been. Uh, and he's a member of Harvard's global advisory board. Uh, and Fred, you are a distinguished economist and a leading practitioner in the worlds of business between China and the United States. Where, in your view, are there opportunities and risks now? Where are the opportunities for deepening cooperation in the coming year and beyond? Uh, and as obstacles appear, how might they be overcome? Can you take those very easy questions? Thank you, Bill, uh, for putting together this uh, distinguished panel so that I have the opportunity to see my old friends, Nian and David, and I also have the pleasure to meet uh, Shirley and uh, you know, benefiting from her really deep insights about uh, Taiwan. Um, first, maybe a disclaimer. You might have noticed that I share the same uh, virtual background with the uh, Winnie. Um, but I uh, make clear I have not stolen, robbed, or cheated. Uh, so they should be not become a new irritant over intellectual property rights between our two countries. To just say it's a Harvard University library background, um, and all of the books are, are uh, have been returned on time. And uh, and actually, we are encouraged to use that as our background during the pandemic. Um, yeah. So on on your question, um, despite the um, you know alarmingly high tensions between China and the U.S. right now, uh, both sides really should step back and realize. Disputes and quarrels aside, they are actually a broad array of shared or convergent interests between China and the U.S. Hence, rational and forward-looking leaders should seize every possible opportunity for cooperation uh, between the two countries. I will start with the pandemic. You know, U.S. has been... Um, hit so hard by the pandemic um, to a large degree uh, because of failed leadership. The incoming Biden administration will surely make this a top priority. Instead of mutual acquisitions, as sadly has been the case throughout this pandemic, China and the U.S. should really work together to lead a coordinated global response to a true global pandemic. It includes uh, everything from sharing data, sharing experience uh, on virus containment, and public health uh, crisis mitigation-based practices uh, to vaccines and therapeutics. So instead of going separate ways uh, to use the pandemic as a geopolitical tool uh, you know, to why for influence, U.S. and China should really work together and lead the uh, concerted the global efforts uh, to assist the poor developing countries, uh, especially those in Africa, with affordable vaccines and the possible economic aid to help those crisis-stricken economies to recover. Second, uh, climate change. President-elect Biden has publicly committed uh, to bring U.S. back to the Paris Agreement. Uh, that agreement, uh, as we know, signed, ratified by more than 160 countries, except the biggest country, 
uh, fixed economy uh, and the and and the Trump administration. So partially to undo the damages caused by Trump, um, and the President-elect Biden has also committed to a zero net emission goal by 2050. So coincidentally, President Xi Jinping has also announced at the UN General Assembly in September that China commits to carbon neutrality by 2060. So hence, as we see, uh, the two largest economies, uh, largest energy consumers and the largest emitters have both embraced climate change as a national and the international uh, 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 strategic objective. So clearly, there's a shared vision here, a shared interest and commitment to climate change uh, between U.S. and China. So this, I believe, may well be the most significant opportunity uh, for our two countries to partner and collaborate with uh, each other. Um, third, I will quickly, a nuclear non-proliferation. Uh, President Trump has torn apart the multilateral Iran nuclear deal and failed to, uh, on his high profile, summits with Kim Jong-un on North Korea uh, denuclearization. Uh, the Biden administration will need to uh, salvage the Iranian deal and continue to press North Korea. Um, on dangerous uh, WMDs. So again, both China and the US are aligned in terms of end goal. It's fair to say US will not be able to make any meaningful headways unless it is prepared to work with the other countries, but especially with China, certainly uh, in the case of North Korea. So finally, uh, aside from a Trump administration's reckless trade wars, uh, EO justified the assaults against Huawei, TikTok, WeChat, and many other Chinese tech companies. Perhaps um, the most damaging of all recent U.S. actions uh, to the bilateral relations are the restrictions uh, or threatened res restrictions uh, on Chinese students and scholars studying and doing research uh, in the U.S. Uh, Bill, you are the, um, not only the distinguished historian on China, but also really distinguished authority on higher education. And uh, you know, I, we're looking forward to your new book. As we all know, an open high education system is the one of the most uh, enduring competitive advantages of America, enabling US to attract and oftentimes retain uh, uh, the top talent from around the world, uh, including China. Since 1979, Chinese students have made uh, America, you know, the single most um, uh, important destination for study. The majority of our Chinese students, uh, when David and I uh, both were in graduate school uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, you know, have chosen to stay in the U.S., becoming American citizens and serving on the faculty and the research labs across U.S. university campuses. As for those of us, like David and myself, who have returned to China, we have also been promoting uh, the ties between our two countries. So education exchange really bring about numerous 
tangible and intangible benefits uh, to the two countries and to the world at large. So should and will uh, outlast whatever uh, administrations in either capital and transcend domestic politics uh, in either country. So I'd like to uh, thank Harvard and Bill uh, for your leadership uh, to make sure uh, Harvard for one remains uh, deeply invested in and engaged with China, no matter how the political climate uh, may have uh, changed. So I close by saying that uh, uh, restoring and maintaining two-way education and cultural exchange are just absolutely essential for a healthy and sustainable uh, bilateral relationship. Hence, a vital opportunity of cooperation, not just for the next four years, but for many uh, generations to come. Thank you very, very much, Fred. Before we turn to the audience, we have a bunch of questions coming in, and I urge people to to uh, send in uh, questions via via the chat. I'd like each panelist now to take one minute to think of uh, in this one minute what is the what is the one thing or the first thing we've just had an American election. Uh, we do have a president elect. There will be a new administration, no matter what you've heard out there, and. Uh, and it will take uh, office on January 20th. Uh, what is the first thing that Mr. Biden should do on January 20th or that the U.S. could do? And what is the first thing that China could do if, as it seems this panel broadly agrees, uh, there, uh, uh, there is the opportunity for a reset uh, uh, or to look for areas of cooperation? So let me start with uh, David. Let me start with you. What's, what's the first thing Biden should do and what's the first thing President Xi should do? The first thing President, uh, President Biden uh, should do is to invite a famous professor named Bill Kirby to host a seminar for the White House, seriously, for the, for the, for the cabinet, for the cabinet to talk about um, uh, a new, the new reality of uh, China. What's the, second, what's the second thing he should do? <laughs> Second thing they should do is to uh, really to form a committee to form a committee on uh, U.S.-China relations, uh, a permanent committee to uh, start from deep you know to reset to start from deep philosophical relearning of China of China on um, on the Chinese side on the Chinese side uh, the first thing the president uh, uh, President Xi Jinping should do in my view is also to uh, hold um, uh, internal work conference. Uh, about the U.S., about the U.S., and also it's very timely because China is not working on its 14th five-year plan, and also it's a long-term goal of uh, leading to 2035. So, uh, frankly speaking, the single most important external uncertainty, external factor of uncertainty, is the USA. Okay, <laughs> how to deal with the U.S. Uh, if China wants to continue its current path of um, of of rising, great, thank you, Professor Rigger. Um, what is the first thing that Mr. Biden should do vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, and what should Tsai Ing-wen do? Ah, you tricked me with a question. I was I was thinking about I, what. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think vis-a-vis -vis China, the first thing uh, President Biden should do is to declare the U.S. back in the um, Paris Climate Agreement um, 
And I think he should do that. China, no China, Taiwan, no Taiwan. But I guess the first thing that uh, uh, President Biden should do with respect to Taiwan is to say, um, we start for, we start from scratch. We start fresh. Um, I have, I understand that there has been some kind of a conversation about me over there, but uh, I wasn't listening. I don't care. I don't take it personally. We're moving on. And the first thing uh, Tsai Ing-wen should do is say, thank you very much. I am completely in agreement. Let's move on. I mean, there's been a really toxic debate about uh, Biden in Taiwan. And uh, I, th I think it's very important that it not poison the relationship between the Taiwanese government and the U.S. government going forward. And I don't think it will, but it would be important for it not to. Thank you. Thank you. You and me, your thoughts? First thing Biden, first thing President Xi? President Biden, President Xi? Well, I have made it first in my mind. You only get one, one each, one each. So we... I, one each is, um, well, I regard the current uh, pandemic situation is such a one which opened the door for both sides to join in. Because uh, I just had talk with uh, a return student from America who is a member of uh, American um, Association of Sciences and has been doing wonderful work in the city of Beijing as a one founder, one of the founders of a leading research center. Uh, he and I talk a lot about the current, uh, globally, the vaccine uh, causes all over, of course, all over, mainly in the U.S. and Europe. And China is uh, putting a lot of human resources and money in this huge field. But how both sides could find a way to work together? Anyway, it's a uh, it's human, and uh, both leaders need that kind of a support from their people. So I really regard this uh, public health crisis. Uh, now we are here, and we if we have this window opportunity for collaboration, at least say as a first step. So I put. Thank you very, very much. Actually, you've, you've addressed actually one of our questions from uh, Alec Gregorian uh, from the Harvard College class of 2019 just on that issue. So thank you very, very much. Uh, Fred? I would, uh, where I hope the first and the Biden administration would do is to end the disastrous trade war. Because that really hurts America, as well as hurting China. So, you know, as it, Trump's signature policy, let's put it to an end once and for good. And that will send a very powerful message uh, to Beijing and be well, well received. Then, of course, on pandemic, as, uh, you know, Professor Yuan said, and you know, there's a vast scope of collaboration and then, you know, nuclear non 
liberation and climate change above all, uh, there's a vast scope, you know. So what I think the simple, the simple message from uh, White House would be um, uh, de-escalate, re-engage, and compete where there's a really divergent interest. Right? That doesn't get China will take the way well. Thank you. Uh, Winnie, do you have uh, anything to, to add on that? Because uh, our, from our School of Public Health, you've been most deeply engaged on pandemic cooperation. Um, so first of all, I want to thank all the panelists for a very insightful um, analysis. But I'm also very uh, positively um, encouraged because many of you are laying out agendas on what the two sides can do. And I took definitely agree that both public health and climate are the two area that, uh, areas that are potential for the two countries to work on. Um, but actually, I was going to ask each of you, you all have thought about what the two should, countries should do, ought to do to improve. What do you see as the most important challenge for the two countries to not do what they ought to be doing? Any any comments by any? You're kind of asking, what are they really going to do? Yeah, uh, Winnie, Winnie, let, let me let me try. Okay, this is a very very interesting okay. question. Thank you very much. Let me try. Okay, I think both for both sides is the same challenge, same kind of a challenge. That is how to ring in the uh, extreme views from uh, domestic politics. On the Chinese side, we do have a large contingent. Of, of leftists, we call leftists, okay, <laughs> who, who attack the U.S. Uh, violently, okay, on many issues. On the U.S. side, you also have um, extreme people holding extreme views. I'm sorry to, to name a person, okay, uh, for example, your current, your incumbent secretary, <laughs> Pompeo, and his advisors, I do not think they are serving the U.S. interest uh, the best, okay, by, um, by attacking the uh, the ruling party in China and by attacking uh, a lot of uh, uh, institutions in China. So let's try to stop those people who are holding extreme views from influencing our policies and influencing our 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 media and influencing our population. That's the most important challenge to tackle. To tackle with. Great, thank you. I'm going to turn to some of the questions that have emerged in in chat. And one of them is from a an MBA student at Wharton, uh, although formerly here at uh, 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 research at HBS, Yuan Wang. Uh, what are the prospects for real compromise? What do you? We're all in, everyone is in favor of it, uh, but compromises have to happen or have to be have to be found. Uh, and how likely? How dug in? You know, if Biden, for example, uh, following uh, does not follow Fred's advice and continues the tariffs, as he seems to have indicated that he might do, at least in, in the interest. How should Jung Nanhai respond to that? Fred, do you want to take that? That's a slightly hotter potato. Yeah, I will try. You know, I said earlier, trade war uh, is, is, is uh, not nice, is nasty, and trade war is not easy to win, as nobody ever wins from a trade war. So, even really, Regardless of what the uh, you know, Biden vision might do or not to do, I would hope uh, Beijing uh, would unilaterally end the trade war by getting rid of all the tariffs. 
just uh, in, the, in response to uh, Trump's actions. Not only that, Beijing could go even further to, in fact, um, you know, lower tariffs across the board to really become a champion uh, for global trade liberalization and to make WTO work again for, for the world economy. So if China does that, I think a lot of uh, anti-China sentiments in the U.S. and the protection sentiments in the U.S. You know, might uh, eventually subside. Uh, Fred, uh, Bill, I'm sorry to, to, to cutting. Okay, I completely agree with with Fred. Okay, the Chinese side actually, if you watch carefully, has shown very positive signals in the past two weeks, maybe three weeks. First, uh, President Xi announced that uh, China is uh, is joining Japan and many other countries in the negotiation of the so-called CPTPP, Comprehensive and Progressive. A trade partnership, uh, a trade partnership. I think that's the, the right word. CPTPP. Okay. And also China announced that, uh, uh, uh it, uh, uh, it just signed RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive uh, Economic Partnership. Right. And also President Xi last week, three days ago, made a video speech to the International Advisory Board of the, uh, Tsinghua School of Economics and Management. You may think this is a small potato, but actually that board, that advisory board is the most, um, I'm running out of words, most um, interesting and uh, luxurious high profile board of all schools. Okay. The CEOs of all major corporations are there. Okay. So why, why would President Xi Jinping make uh, that, that, uh, make that speech? To that video, video speech to that board, of course, a virtual meeting. President Xi Jinping wants to send a signal that China is willing to talk, is willing to push for a continued globalization. So I, Fred, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. Okay. China is actually already sending out, uh, olive branches. We have a, you know, one of, among the questions that have come in in our chat are ones that remind us that the U.S. and China relationship is not only about the United States and China. Uh, one comes from Louise Neo, who says that there's a third party. Actually, now it's a fourth party in the U.S.-China marriage, and that's the EU and, or Germany. Um, and, uh, she quotes, uh, uh, Martin Wansleben, uh, from the, uh, CEO of the German Chamber of Commerce and Industry, who said that there's a German saying, when two people's quarrels, the third rejoices. But as Shelley has said, that's not necessarily the case in the case of Taiwan, and it's not necessarily the case in the case of the EU. Because how can a third party, what role might, say, the EU, uh, or German, largely German-influenced EU, play in resetting the, Chi if any, the Chinese-American uh, relationship? Hmm. I have no, but, um, no takers. Uh, Bill, you're, you're, the, you're the world economy. You can do this. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me, uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I speak too much. Okay. Now I just finished a marathon, a marathon of two day webinar, a two day webinar with the record seminar to the, over the weekend with uh, European Union speakers, with the British speakers, with the US speakers and the Chinese 
Chinese participants, okay, two, you know, around the clock, two twenty forty-eight hours, okay, and and also Australian, also Australian, okay. Let me report you the message, okay. The message there is from the U.S. side, from U.S. side, you are including your colleagues of Ju 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 um uh Ju Nai, okay, uh, and Kissinger, right? They're saying that the the European Union should form a third community of uh, a democracy against China. Okay, China is a non-democracy. Okay, and the Chinese side, of course, what does not have that message. Okay, so my view, my view is that Europe is Europe. Okay, Europe should not take sides. Europe should be an independent third party or fourth party and uh, work and negotiate with the U.S. and China on issue on issue. Okay, don't force any. Uh, Align any alliance with anybody. Be, be yourself. Okay, I think that way our world will be more peaceful. Uh, will be uh, our relations will be becoming simpler. Okay, let's uh, let's don't forget the World War One started like this way, right? That's my. I'm not a historian. You you know better than I do. Okay, form alliance is it's very toxic. It's very dangerous for this world. Okay, be yourself. Take your own interest. Take care of your interest. Right. Work, work on issue on issue. Don't side with the U.S. or don't side with China. All right. Well, um, one of our uh, uh, questioners, and I've been looking for the question right now, is has uh, asked, has uh, taken a historical perspective, um, quoting Mr. Radcliffe, who recently said that uh, China is the greatest danger to world peace uh, since World War II. Um, is it your sense in China that people believe that the United States is the greatest danger to China since Japan? Sorry, Bill. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm running the risk of speaking too much. Okay. I uh -huh. truly, truly disagree with this view that China is the single largest threat to international peace. Okay. Uh, for one superficial reason and one fundamental reason. The superficial reason is super simple. China does not have a single piece of military base outside the mainland territory. Okay, U.S., I, my best, U.S., I think, I may be wrong. U.S. has 300, 300 military bases. I may be wrong, okay? I'm not an expert in this area, but definitely more than one, okay? More than one, the U.S., okay? And also, despite the rhetorics about the threat of the Belt and Road program, despite the rhetorics of China-Pakistan good alliance, right? China does not send out any single military advisor to any of the countries, including countries in Pakistan, like Pakistan and Belt and Road countries, right? So that's very superficial. And also, since 1979, China is the only country only large country not involved in any war, external war, okay? Australia is involved, Britain is involved, Germany even sent out the army to uh, to one of the wars with the US, right? So this is a superficial reason, okay? The fundamental reason is this, okay? Again, I'm I'm uh, I'm 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 not I'm speaking like a non-expert in front of an expert, okay? You are expert, okay? So help me, please, Bill, to tell me whether I'm wrong or wrong. I believe, here's my belief. My belief is that the Chinese political social system is so complicated that it's totally impossible to export, to duplicate the system outside China. Unlike the case of the UK democracy, US democracy, right? And also you are, you know, your, 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 the Bible is much easier for the US, at least 
so far, you, that's the perception. Okay, it's much easier for the U.S. political system to be duplicated, to be exported to other countries. So China has no ambition and no capacity to expand beyond its border. All China wants, in my view, people talk about a grand plan or a grand ambition. There is a grand ambition. The grand ambition is for China to come back to whatever days of, you know, before 90, 1840, okay, <laughs> opium war, okay, to become a well-respected country, a prosperous region with happy people. That's it. That's it. So I do not think China is the threat of international peace. To the contrary, China is actually potentially a stabilizing force for international peace and to cooperate with the U.S. to maintain international peace. Okay, I, I should stop. I've talked too much. Please, Bill, you please, you, you should provide answers. You are a historian. You know better than I do, okay? But, you know, you, you've hit on an issue. I think there's, well, we, we are in a moment, and a number of the questions really have this at the, their heart as well. We're in a motion, moment of great mutual suspicion, lack of mutual trust, and I would go far to say almost mutual paranoia. So if you look, if you know, looking historically at China today, China is at its most secure uh, position geopolitically, strategically, um, since the Opium War. That is to say, no one threatens any, no one threatens China's borders. Uh, not Russia, not Japan, uh, not Taiwan, uh, not going to retake the mainland, shall we? Um, not Vietnam, not India. The only possible threat that I can think of to uh, China comes from, you know, because you never know where a North Korean missile might land. Uh, but it's, uh, and yet there is a still a profound sense of being threatened. Um, and, the United States, it's not a matter of uh, really a physical threat, but a great sense of inadequacy, of growing inadequacy, of falling behind the Huawei business, in part because the United States has no company uh, at the moment to compete uh, with Huawei. Uh, it, it relies on Europeans or Chinese for the infrastructure for its 5G networks. Uh, and there's a sense of falling behind uh, and a sense of drifting behind, more than falling behind. But this mutual, um, do you have, in a world, let me ask all of you this, in a world in which seemingly increasingly many people in this country get their information from sources uh, of, at least uh, from my point of view, of, of dubious value, and in China also, uh, both through the the uh, internet and through state-controlled media and censorship, often highly distorted views uh, of what is going on in the outside world. How how does one begin to get beyond uh, the fear of fear, uh, uh, the fear of fear itself? Uh, to quote an, another American president taking office uh, at a time of crisis, Yuan Ming. Uh, yes, I, I I want to join in uh, partly join David's point. Uh, those uh, extreme views actually on both sides they just um, not only there but with quite uh, uh, widespread they are feeding each other. Uh, it's not healthy at all. But I also want to say. Uh, here in, in China, there are 
quite different kind of view, which is challenging those extremes. And some publications, uh, certainly here, which I quoted a lot. Like recently, I quoted Professor Zhao Dingxing, who is the head of uh, the uh, Institute of Humanity and Social Science Research in Zhejiang University. Uh, Professor Zhao is a return student from the University of Chicago um, and played quite active role in Chinese intellectual society. And he published an article in a journal which not that familiar to me called the Wenhua Zhongheng, which becomes a more and more so popular, uh, well known here. And what Prof. Uh, Professor Zhao said is exactly still what you mentioned. Uh, if I uh, he put that in Chinese, uh, like in the historical long run, if we started from Yang Wu Yun Dou, from that kind of historical perspective, China at the current moment still is in the best, uh, comparatively speaking, with the past, the best, best position to reform itself, to develop, and then by shaping the world, mainly by changing itself. So I very much agree with that kind of a balanced point of view, and I think if we could have this kind of a views getting more known around the world, especially in the U.S., which is very helpful. And also I wanted to say uh, people like, well, those uh, Highly intellectual people, uh, like Kirk Campbell, also from Harvard. Uh, Kirk and Jake Sullivan published an article last year in Boarding Affairs. Um, they talk a lot, of course, but one sentence really caused my interest. China may ultimately present a stronger ideological challenge than the Soviet Union did. Well, what does that mean? Bill, I hope you will give me some, some answer to that. For me, this sort of a conclusion or point, um, I certainly can understand why they put their ideas like this, but people like them, Kirk and Jake, now they will have more influence in Mr. Biden's, on Mr. Biden's policy, if I may have a guess. I think this, their point in their article in Foreign Affairs seems to me too simple. It's not that simple, they'll present a stronger ideological challenge. What? First, ideology is not culture. It's different. And then talking about culture, how much do they know the Chinese culture? Well, well we all, almost all agree when we talk about one American who can really explain or 
uh, elaborate on Chinese culture, we'll think we'll recommend Bill Kirby, right? We won't say, well, regard such a civilization like Chinese civilization simplified it as a his ideology. Then put Korea Union, America. Well, this is the world. This is a very complicated world. Back back into history. How could we in 21st century give some explanation with such a simple or simplest rhetoric? It will mislead it. Especially misleading the younger generation who are going to build up our future. So let's still come down to the bottom. While when we started those education, those uh, mutual understanding, from where should we start? Certainly, we can't start from those kind of simple ideologically China's challenges stronger than the former Soviet Union, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's not helpful. I'll stop you. I thought David captured that point of view very directly when he talked about the lack of a political export model. Uh, after all, it is called uh, not necessarily special characteristics of Chinese um, socialism. One very direct question on a very direct issue that uh, I know several of you know about uh, from Helen Lee from outside and uh, for Fred and David, if you if you wish. Uh, Helen Lee would like to hear the panel's thought on the suspension of the Ant Financial IPO um, and its implication and particularly its implications for U.S.-China capital markets. Um, anyone with the courage uh, to address that one, that Bill, that, that David, David, I think you, I think it would be best for you to do this. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to talk. Okay, but my only point is that the, that question was tailored for Fred. <laughs> Fred, you have to answer. <laughs> well, you know, so we all know uh, the IPO, much anticipated, was suspended. Um, I believe um, the Chinese regulators. Um, you know, want to, uh, strike a fine balance, like other, um, leading economy like the US, um, the rise of, uh, big tech, uh, on the whole is a force for good, has really raised the productivity, has really served the consumer interest well, well, and has, um, you know, really make the economy more digitized, therefore more resilient in the times like this, in the, in the middle of a pandemic. So there are many, many benefits uh, China has ripped from the rise of FinTech. And of course, you know, and the group is the undisputed leader in this country and probably in the world. Um, so the temporary suspension doesn't mean, you know, the company will not uh, go public. And, um, and also China will continue to promote the um, uh, innovation broadly and in the FinTech uh, every in, uh, in, in particular, because China probably competed the U.S. in the U.S. Uh, has a very modern, uh, well-developed financial system. China, I think, has a increasingly successful financial system, but still, in 
developing, uh, and the many many Chinese who still do not have access uh, to financial services. So there's a place need for inclusive finance, and uh, and the group is uh, very well positioned to deliver that um, desirable social benefit to hundreds of millions of people at very very low cost. So I do think the Chinese government, you know, intends to continue to promote innovation and to enable uh, innovators like Ant Group to succeed. But they want to strike a fine balance, you know, what, make sure they understand the implications of the FinTech, um, you know, for financial stability, for consumer protection, uh, and so forth. So it's not too different from, you know, the debate on Capitol Hill. Uh, Congress tried to rein in the big tech, you know, whether it's uh, on antitrust grounds or privacy or, you know, um, consumer protection. So it's a very similar um, phenomenon uh, is happening in China. But, uh, you know, I'm uh, cautiously uh, optimistic about the prospect uh, of China FinTech as a whole and, and the group uh, in particular. Thank you very much, Fred. I'm mindful of our time and heading toward it. I want to give our director, Winnie Yip, uh, a final, a final word. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is a, a panel that is marked by, I think, actually more than cautious optimism, but at least optimism, uh, and realism, uh, and, uh, with the need for some space, uh, some time, maybe a timeout as David has uh, suggested, uh, to think and to reset uh, because uh, the relationship is so important to both countries, to their neighbors, uh, and to the broader world. And I'm reminded of the kind of intellectual connectivity that we see here with the shield of the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, Fei Zhengqing, Fei Zhengqing, uh, Professor Fairbank, uh, a great historian of modern China, learned his Chinese history at Tsinghua University on, under the chairman of the department there, Zhang Tingfu, uh, who would go on to be a great Chinese diplomat. And Fairbank would spend the Second World War as uh, uh, with our Chinese ally in the consulate in Chongqing. Uh, he uh, would then see an utter collapse uh, and catastrophic collapse of U.S.-China relations during the Korean War. Uh, and he would found this center in 1955 because of his belief uh, that in the United States, as in China, but he couldn't do anything about China, but at least in the United States, knowledge about China had become so politicized, so poisonous uh, in political rhetoric uh, that there had to be a reset, as it were, and he had to, he wished to take an academic approach, uh, toward educating, uh, Americans through research, through teaching, uh, through colleges and schools, uh, in a broader way, uh, about China. Uh, we, I asked Yuan Ming before, are we at the low point right now? For sure, we are not at the low point, uh, in the U.S.-China relations. We have been at the low point in that catastrophic war from 1950 to 1953, uh, and in many other confrontations. And we have been at many higher points. Uh, and let us aspire to more of those. But let us 
let me turn in our final moment to our, our director, uh, Witty Yip, uh, for even more positive words, if you may. Thank you very much, Bill, for organizing this and also for all the panelists for being so candid, sharing your views about U.S.-China relations. And um, I think this is one of the very few panels that I have heard our panelists to be just very honest and um, getting to the point of what we can do and what are the real situation. Um, I'm definitely very um, encouraged by the positivism that you have um, conveyed. But I also want to just uh, say that I want to reinforce a common theme that all of you have said in this difficult relationship, the role of the universities and the academics and researchers that we all have a role to play to um, help each side to understand each other, help each side to create platform and uh, opportunities to work with each other. And it is this um, I call it an osmosis process that is being um, used by the individuals, like every one of us, that would help the situation become better. Um, politics will still continue to run its course, and there are two times that it would be better for us to do our work. There are times that, that it's more difficult. We're in a difficult time. But we cannot give up. We would have to continue to make that happen. Um, today we were at the um, China Fund um, discussion. We were just talking about the latest um, Trump executive order of not giving visas for Communist Party to come to the U.S. And that's going to be quite damaging for academic exchange. And so again, I think it is uh, it's up to all of us here and beyond to work with each other to make it happen uh, better. So again, I thank you all of you, and I hope this is the beginning, uh, not a beginning, a continuation of us working together to um, continue to make the relationship as good as one can be. Thank you very much. Thank you, Winnie, very much. And I want to thank Shelley, Yuan Ming, David, and Fred. I very much appreciate you being up early uh, on the Pacific side. And up late here on the East Coast uh, for uh, Shelley and Winnie. Thank you. Thank you.